We're in a study on the book of 1 John, except not today, all right? And, uh, and it's through the most tenuous of rabbit trails. Last week, uh, we were talking about um, the great festival of the booths, Sukkot, and, and the water festival part of it, and how powerful that was, and how when they dipped in, uh, the pitcher in the pool of Siloam, and they walked back holding that up, the water that they would say was from the wells of God's salvation. And everyone would sing. There'd be singing and there'd be musicians playing and people would dance, but everyone would sing. And they would sing through the book of Psalms. They might not get through the whole book, but they would sing Psalms together as they ascended up to the, uh, to the temple. And this was worship. And I started thinking about that because we talk about worship a lot. And I've talked about it sometimes done uh, some sermons on worship. And I thought, you know, every once in a while, we just need to retouch that. What are we talking about when we talk about worship? And there's the message. And so I want to say this. This is, this is a bridge to life change. There's a number of things that are important things. Scripture says is so important for life change. And this is one of them. Worship is one of them. It's not an, it's not an afterthought. It's not something we do to entertain it's nothing like that. If you think about it, even today, as we worshiped, you know, and, and trying to think about it and trying to work it through my mind and, 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 and think about what it means and thinking about surrender, and surrender leads to freedom. And, and what an interesting thought that is. That's so counterintuitive. And see, that's what worship is, is that when we sing together, our minds are engaged. We think. We work through things. And so we're going to look at Psalm 95 Psalm 95 is a call to worship, and it gives us information on what worship is about. And I want to say right off, you know, as I read and as I study, I see people who talk about it. I look up what people are saying, and and three that really had a lot to say, I felt like for me, uh, Francis Chan, A.W. Tozer, and Tim Keller, three three men who have written on and, and talked about worship in some powerful ways. And so I owe them a debt in this. As we look through this, we're going to look at Psalm 95, and I just want to read through uh, the first seven or eight verses. Um, It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. So he keeps going, but I just want to hone in on that for just a few minutes. I want us to think about a couple of things. The first thing I want us to see here is why should we worship? Right? This is a legitimate question. We can talk about it, but people can say, uh, so what? So what? So why do we worship? And this runs into an age-old problem that is what people have struggled with, Christians have struggled with. We say that we believe something, but our actions actually, truly reveal what we believe. I say that telling the truth is important. Lying is wrong. But I feel sometimes, if I'm in a very difficult uh, situation, this temptation, not necessarily to flat-out lie, 
Maybe just manipulate the truth a little bit. Maybe withhold a part of the truth. Maybe it's the part I don't like. Or sometimes the truth is just too much to explain. So just shade it a little bit to make it easier for people to understand or for someone, or I don't, so I don't have to deal with someone. See, when I do that, what is happening is I say one thing, lying is wrong, but my actions reveal something else. My actions reveal another thing. I say I love my wife, but at times my actions towards her can be unloving and unthoughtful and selfish. And the Bible says in so many places, this is what a believer in Jesus Christ looks like. This is what, how a believer in, in, in Jesus Christ lives. These are the things that you see when you see someone who's walking with God. You see love, you see joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, honesty, humility, self-control, courage. These are the hallmarks of someone who's walking with God. And those are not always the hallmarks of my life. And if I'm going to be honest, those are sometimes very rarely the hallmarks of my life. So, why so many who have these beliefs? Because I'm not going in here alone. You guys are coming with me. We're all in this together. So, why are so many people struggling with these things? Why are so many people saying, this is what I believe, and yet their actions at times show something totally different? Their character is not reflective of what they say they believe. And the answer is, we need a bridge. We need a bridge between belief and character. We need something that helps us cross that. Because you're not just a brain in a vat. You're not just a mind. You are emotions. You're a body and you're a soul. And so our beliefs have to permeate not just our mind, not just our brain. They have to affect our will. They have to affect our character. They have to affect our emotions. They have to engage the whole person. We talk about this quite a few times as we sing. As we sing, we want to engage every aspect of us our thinking, our thought processes, our will, our decision-making process, our emotions, all of those need to be engaged. You know, in the book of James, one of the central themes of his belief is this, of his, well, central themes of his book is this, that it, mere intellectual belief is not enough. It has to go deeper than that. And so even today, we worshiped the beginning of this, we're worshiping by singing. We worshiped as we prayed. We worship as we study God's word. It engages our voice, our mind, our imagination, our emotions, our body. Singing your beliefs, praying your beliefs, reciting, uh, um, um, discovering scripture together to understand our beliefs. This is what corporate worship is. It's a practice that engages the whole person and what it does is it drives your beliefs deeper into your life. And there are practices you can engage to facilitate this. Bible reading and prayer, and meditation, going to a small group, going to a Bible study group. There's lots of them. And this is one of them, worship. Otherwise, what happens? We become disconnected. And when we become disconnected, we can see it because what happens is our beliefs don't start lining up with our, 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 our actions. Our actions are not always lining up with our beliefs. That's when we have that disconnect and it can grow. And so when you have someone who says, this is what I believe, even for me sometimes, I say, this is what I believe. 
and then I act this way, and it doesn't reflect what I believe. What happens? That disconnect comes up. Frustration comes in. You fall short, and you're well aware of it. Our, we have a group. Uh, we've been sending people to, to Arizona to work on the Navajo Reservation for 20-whatever years now. And uh, one of the things when I first started doing is going to Lake Powell, and there, there's a, uh, a, a dam, Glen Canyon Dam, and you can go in, and of course, you know, one of, one, of the, one of the earlier trips, it was me and like four other adults, and we had like about 28 teenagers, and uh, I said, oh, let's go into the Glen Canyon Dam Museum and see how it was built. And, and from that point, when you see the dam, then you see this huge, beautiful lake, beautiful shade of blue, and, and they're like, but we're going to go swimming there, right? I said, yeah, let's just go see the museum first, and all I hear is 28 no right? I don't want to see that museum, but I'm thinking it's pretty cool, right? They had to blast through rock, they had, and they have videos you can watch, and it's pretty neat because one of the things they were showing was if you, if you take a big cache of dynamite and you just plaster it up against a rock wall and then you explode it, a few little pieces fall, nothing much. But if you take a drill and you drill 10 feet in and you shove about one-tenth of that amount of dynamite in that hole and you do that 10 times in a row, spaced 20 feet apart. You set those off, and about 100 tons of rock just crumble in one shot. Why? Because when it gets into it, change occurs. Last week I talked about, um, many years ago, going to a Promise Keepers event, and what a life-changing event it was for me. Um, Being in a in a football stadium with 50,000 people singing the praises of God. You know, I'd sung the praises of God before. I'd sung the songs we sang there before. But there was something happening there, and it got in deeper. And, and I mentioned this, and uh, a couple of people even asked, but I mentioned this. If you ask my wife, was there a trip I ever went on that I came back totally different? And she will tell you it was the promise keepers that he went to. He was not the same person when he came back. I don't know what happened. I don't know exactly. Well, I do know what happened. God worked. But it's like it drilled in deep. And it just changed me. The Holy Spirit worked and applied scriptural principles into my life. And it changed me. I had no clue what I was in for. And so we have to get it in deep. This is what's so important. Why should we worship? Because worship is one of the ways that we drill in and we plant the power of God, the power of God. And that word power in the Greek is dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. That power causes change. And see, if you say, I'm a believer, I believe in this, I want to walk with Jesus Christ, but there's no prayer, there's no worship, there's no Bible reading, there's no studying in community, there's no community disciplines, disciplines in accountability, no deep spiritual friendships. What happens is you will struggle. You will be frustrated. You need to take them deep in your heart, and that's how that happens. And so this is why we should study worship. Worship is one of the ways God changes us from the inside out. So the second thing I want you to see Why should we worship? Second one is, what is worship? We have to say that before we actually apply it in our lives. So let me give you, let me give you a definition of worship. All right, this is something 
you know, I kind of saw some people saying this and kind of tweaked it a little bit, but worship is ascribing ultimate value to an object and engaging your mind, your heart, and your will as you do it. As you ascribe ultimate value, your mind, your heart, and your will get involved so that you begin to understand the implications of it. You use your entire person to proclaim something that is incredibly important to you or is the most important thing to you. First thing I want you to see from this scripture is when you do that, it engages the entire person. It takes the entire person. Look here, and this is the, the first part of Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and with song. This is, this is the entire person being involved now. You know, he's saying, we, we're going to shout. We're going to physically come to a spot to do this. It involves every bit of us. <clears throat> we're going to come before him with thanksgiving. We're going to extol him. We're going to praise him. We're going to worship him with music. We're going to worship joyfully, and our emotions get involved. Shout, sing, heart, all of those things. And then he says, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, this word bow is this idea of submission. In the Hebrew, the word worship is a very interesting word. It, it was a word sometimes they used, and I've talked about this, so I know some of you know it, but it's, it's important. It's the word they would use sometimes. Maybe, maybe there's a battle, okay? So there's a, there's a big battle going on, and one army defeats the other army. And so what happens? They drag the king of the losing army before the king of the winning army. And the king of the winning army, is his, he can, I can chop his head off. I can just kill him, right? And so what happens? They come, the, the losing army comes. He has a choice, but he'll come. And what he'll do is he'll lay his sword on the ground, and then he'll get on his knees. I'm not going get, to get on my knees bow down because watching me get up can be painful. And, and he, he bows and puts his hands open on the ground, like, just like on all fours. That's what that Hebrew word has this idea of. And what does that mean when he does that? Here's what it means. He drops his sword, and he holds open hands. I come with nothing. I have no power. I have nothing in this situation that I can give, that I can do. I'm defeated in, 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 a, in, a, in that sense. And he hunches over, and he bows, he, and it's called he bears the neck. He says, you can cut my head off. You can kill me right here. I give up. You won. Now, that's in the etymology of the word in Hebrew for worship. So what happens? Worship, we come to God with nothing. You have everything, God. You're everything. I ascribe you ultimate worth. We just talked about that. I ascribe you ultimate worth. I bow my neck because you are the king. You're the king of the universe. And so I bow my neck. And so this is what's going on when they say in verses 6 and 7 here, come let us bow down and worship. They're thinking of that. It's a physical thing. My posture is a part of this. Worship can be physical. Let us kneel before the Lord God, our maker. I kneel, I bear my neck before my maker because he made me. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. 
And so we have this idea of a submission of the will, of giving over. We sang it, I surrender, I surrender. And then he goes on and says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. God is telling him, he says, look, he's reminding them of something. You remember in the desert when the people said, we don't trust you. You've done some cool stuff, but what have you done lately? What have you done for me lately? And the people rebelled against God. And he's saying, don't harden your heart. He's saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Listen. Listening is a hard thing to do. Yesterday, I was, uh, I was with uh, uh, my, my son's wife. Oh, this is getting too complicated. My son's wife just graduated from graduate school, so we had a little party for my son's wife, and they invited friends, and they invited family, you know, so there's about 20 or 30 people there, and so I don't know if you've ever had this. You get you get, you get stuck in circles sometimes. Like you go into a circle to say hi to some people and then they start talking to you so you can't gracefully just say, yeah, fine, whatever, dude, and you walk away, right? So you got to listen. And so this guy starts talking and sharing with me and the two other people this story. And I'm so bad about this. And I'm thinking, this is not a good story. This is boring. Why is he telling me this? What am I doing here? I got other people I got to go say thank you for coming. I got other things I got to do. Probably need more ice now. Is that a good excuse? You know, and so I'm thinking all these things, and he looks at me, he goes, you know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, because I wasn't listening. It's hard to listen sometimes. Even when it's something you're interested in, it's hard to listen. And that's why the Bible emphasizes so much, and God is saying here, he's telling them, listen, listen. Why? Because what is on the line is eternal. It's not just a story. It's not a dull story. It's not something that doesn't affect you. This affects your life for eternity. So listen. Don't harden your heart. Don't ignore. This is involving the mind. We talk about different parts. Of, this is involving the mind. Listening, not ignoring understanding. So we're talking about things that involve the mind. We're talking about things that involve the will. We're talking about things that involve the emotions. But we have a couple of problems. So oftentimes we believe, but we don't have the joy. There's the emotional part. There's no emotional engagement. Or sometimes we get real emotional, but there's no submission. And either one of those leads you in, in a direction that's it's, it's frustrating. It's powerless. You have no change over time in your life. So it has to be all three. It has to be your mind, your will, and your emotions. All of those must be involved to truly worship. It takes the entire person. Another thing, we talked about ascribing ultimate value. When we say, what is worship? One of the things is, it's ascribing ultimate value. Now, there's a little preposition in Psalm 95 that, that uh, triggers real worship. You know, remember learning the parts of speech at school and thinking, I will never use this in my life. Or you probably said, I ain't never going to use this in my life, right? As you, as you did that. So small word, great meaning. Look at, uh, let me see. 
1 and 2. Now I got to go back to that. I'm sorry. 1 and 2. He says, come, let us sing. Let us sing. What? For joy. That prepositional joy. And it comes up, keeps coming up. What triggers the singing? It's telling us we're going to sing for joy. What triggers the singing for joy? He says, shout aloud to the rock of salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. And, And then he says, for our God is a great God. In verse 3, he says, for the Lord God, there it is, I went ahead, into this, for the Lord God is a great God. For what? Purpose, meaning. Why are we doing this? The Lord God is a great God. He's a great God. So he tells us, come down, bow down and worship. Kneel, kneel before the Lord our maker. Why? For he is our God. And we're the people of his pasture. He's the shepherd. That's why. And when he says that, when he starts talking about sheep, we're the people of his pasture, that triggers things for them. They know all about that. They know all about how a shepherd shepherds. You know, it's, it's different in, in, in the Middle East than it is here. And to this day, it still is. In, in the United States, we drive sheep. We drive cattle. In the Middle East, you can still see Bedouins. You know what they do? They walk in front of them, and they call to them. And interestingly, they sing to them, right? And if they see one starting to wander off, they look back every once in a while. They're like, hey, 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 you know, Joe. If your name's Joe, sorry. Um, Joe, come on back over here, you doofy sheep, right? They call to them specifically, and the sheep know their names. They know their names. That's why when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and, and I call their names, they're all like, yeah, we know how that works. The shepherd doesn't drive. The shepherd leads. And so when they hear that, it gives them a picture of who their God is. The God who goes before. The God who goes through things before we do. And so the psalmist, is do, what he's doing here is he's thinking, he's weighing, he's calculating, he's treasuring the excellence of God. He's thinking about God, and the emotions flow. And he goes, let's sing for joy. You know, the Ten Commandments, they cover so much, but the first two are about worship. Love the Lord your God. Have no other God before me. It's about worship. Worship me rather than anything else. And you know what's interesting in that? God is saying, I understand you're going to be tempted to worship other things. Why? Because you were made to worship. We're all made to worship. I talked to a guy a while back, and he says, no, I don't worship anything. I'm an atheist. I don't worship anything. And we were talking. This was a number of years ago. And uh, when the iPhone 10 first came out, I am ancient. And the iPhone 10 first came out, and, and it had an astronomical price at that time, which now is not so high, I guess, to people, $1,000. But, I mean, that's when you can get a regular phone for $150 to $200,000 for a phone. And we were talking, and... Uh, and I said, um, did you get the insurance for the phone? He goes, nope, nope. And he pulled his phone out. And he said, because this phone will never be broken. And he looks at me and goes, this is my baby. And I wanted to say to him, it's your precious. Just like that. That's what I wanted to say to him, but I didn't. And I'm going, okay, you're going to find other things to worship. I can see it happening already. Because we're made to worship. We can't help it. 
We can worship a career. We can worship a person. We can worship the idea of a relationship. We can worship a family. We can look at something and say, if I get that, if I achieve that, if that comes into my life, I will be happy. We see it in all kinds of things. People who say, you know, if I get that, man, then I will be there. I will be somebody. What are you doing? Worship. The word worship comes from an old English phrase, worth shape. In other words, the worth of something shapes you. The worth you ascribe to it, it shapes you. That's where we get that word uh, out of the old English. You look at something and you say, this is so valuable, this is so important. If I have it, I'm worth something. Then it basically becomes your God. It becomes more than anything else. The psalmist is teaching us that if you really want to change your life, you have to take your heart off of worshiping other things and focus on God. You have to stop sometimes and do the hard work of figuring out what am I worshiping? When I'm going through a difficult time, when I'm angry, especially when I'm angry or I'm frustrated, I stop and I say, what am I not getting that I think I deserve? What is my object of worship at this moment that is making me so upset? Let me illustrate it. I've used this before, but I think it's one of the best illustrations. I love it. You've got to imagine a person, a woman. Maybe she's inherited a piece of jewelry from her grandmother, from dear old granny. And it seems nice, but it's not exactly her style. You know how that, I don't know how that works, actually, but you know how that some of you do. You know how that works. And it's this, and it's this necklace with this, this brooch or this something or other. And you go, oh, that's, you know, it's nice, but it's just not me. And so it goes in a drawer. It goes in a little, in a little box. And it just sits there because it's not worth much, right, to that person. And then you hear, because this is, this is a show I like to watch sometimes, which reveals a lot about me. Sometimes on, on, on uh, public television, I, I watch the, the, um, the auction show, you know, where the, all the people come into, not auction show, the, the antique road show. All these experts come into a town and people get all their junk, hoping hoping, you know, I've got this thing that's been sitting in my garage for 22 years, but I think it's worth $150,000. So they come to the antique roadshow, and you know how that works, and most of the time they just say, oh, yeah, that's a piece of junk, and that's all they tell them. But every once in a while, and these are the ones they always highlight in the show, right? They're always going to highlight these. Every once in a while, somebody goes, you have no clue what this is worth. So, so, this, so this person, you know, they get out the necklace, they that dear old granny gave, that's such a family heirloom. And they, and they bring it there. This person brings it there. And they take it to the jewelry expert, right? So he puts on the little thingy. I don't know what that thing he's called, but he puts on a little thingy and he looks at it. And, and he goes, you know what? It's because I saw one like this one time. Let me go in the back and look at this a little closer. Is that okay? Mm, sure. So he goes in the back and he comes out and you can tell he's excited. He's excited. He's being shaped, right? He suddenly realizes this is worth a lot of money. And so he comes back, and this is the highlight of the show, right? So he comes back, and, and he tells her, he tells her, I got some really good news for you. Why? Why is he telling her that? Because he's worshiped. Worth shaped. The worth of the object has now shaped him. And he's sweating a little bit, and he's trembling a little bit, and he's excited because he's thinking, I, I, I haven't seen something like this maybe ever. 
And so what is he going to do now? He's going to evangelize her. He's going to evangelize her. He's going to tell her the worth that's right in front of her nose. And her life is going to change. He's going to preach the good news. He's going to say, look at this. This is a beautiful piece of Edwardian jewelry. Early 1900s, when King Edward was in charge of of England, the type of jewelry, it has a filigree. It's called Art Nouveau, and it's very rare. Something like this is incredibly rare. You kept it in a box? I want to tell you something. You're more stupid than you ever believed, and you're now more wealthy than you ever dared imagine. And so now what happens? It begins to dawn on her. She's going to worship, right? The worth of it now is shaping her because she's like, oh, my goodness, dear old granny's necklace? He goes, do you want to know what it's worth? I have never in the history of that show said somebody go, no, no, don't even tell me. Just don't tell me. Let me just wonder for the rest of my life, right? No. She's like, yeah, what? At least 150000 maybe a lot more. This is rare, so I'm not 100% sure. But this is worth so much money. That's what you could get for it. And you know, if you've seen this, you know how this goes. Oh, I would never sell dear old granny's locket. Are you kidding it's a family heirloom that I kept in a trash box. It's a family heirloom. I would, why? Because they know they're on TV. They know they're on TV and they know how grubby and self-serving it would seem if they said, sold, you know, right to, the, right to his face. So they say, oh no, I'll keep it. Maybe I'll pass it on to one of my kids, right? Like that. And you know what happens when the camera turns off. Who wants it right now? You know, bye Felicia. Here we go. Take it. Why? Because that's what I, I love my Grammy, my granny, but, uh, you know, we're talking a lot of money here. So, you know, what happened there? What happened there? Worship, the worth shaped, both of them. That's what's going on. They suddenly realized how much this is worth, how rare, how important this is, and it shaped them. The Bible's saying this, many people say, I believe in God. But they end up being just as selfless, just as powerless, just as messed up as anyone else. Why? Because for them, God is like that piece of jewelry struck, stuck in a drawer. It's just something I have. His worth, his excellency, his beauty, it hasn't dawned on them yet. They haven't taken it out of the drawer and looked at it and studied it and investigated it and figured out this is incredible. This deserves to be at the center of my life. We have to do what the psalmist does here. Engage the heart, engage the mind, engage the will, engage the emotions and go, this is a great God. This is a great God. And so, for each of us, we have to think about these things. We have to consider these things. We, we have to think, why do I fail to love my neighbor? Why am I having trouble controlling myself? Why am I failing to be honest all the time? Why? Because you're worshiping the wrong thing. 
There's something else that's come in the, gotten in the way. If you struggle with lying or cheating, it's because deep inside of you, you're looking at something and you're saying, I gotta have this, I gotta have this, and I gotta cut, cut corners to get it. I have to have a relationship. When my, uh, I asked my wife to be, not future wife, when Bev and I started dating, I should just say it that way, uh, a couple dates in, um, we just were sitting outside eating something, and um, she looked at me and she says, I need to tell you something. And I was like, oh boy, I've been dumped before. It starts with something like that, right? And she said, I've had some terrible relationships. I've, I've done some screwy things, and I'm sick of it. So I'm not going to put on a face. I'm not going to I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm just going to be me. And you are going to have to decide whether you want to be with me. And I told her, oh, my gosh, this is so awesome. I said, I'm, I just want to be me. And I've tried so hard to be somebody different when I've gotten into these relationships. And sooner or later, you know, this person that I'm dating figures out he's not real. You know, and they figure out who the real me is, and, and, and I've deceived them. I've acted like I'm more sophisticated or, you know, I'm smarter than, or I'm better at this or whatever it is. And I just act that way because I think someone will like me more if I act that way. And I said, I don't want to do that either. I just want to be me. And she goes, okay, let's try it this way. And I thought, man, all these, all these relationships I've had, I tried it the other way and it always kept failing. And it never occurred to me that that was the reason. And so we said, let's just, let's just be honest and be ourselves with each other. And immediately, I started scaring her deeply with my weirdness. But she worked through it. She worked through it. I can remember saying, you're the biggest nerd in the world. And I said, why dost thou say that? You know, start quoting stupid things. And so for us, for us we have to decide, how, who are we going to be? And who are we going to worship? What are we going to worship? I gotta have my reputation. I gotta have this job. I gotta have this money. I gotta have this relationship. I gotta have this, 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 and it'll, it means everything to me. Why do we do it? Because we're worshiping something else. There's something besides God that I feel like I must have. There's something more worthy than God in my life right now. There's something I'm worshiping. Because if you really valued his love over the love of anything else or anyone else. If you, really, if you really got a hold of his approval over the approval of anyone else, then if someone criticizes you, it wouldn't bother you. And if you break up with, something, with someone, it may hurt at the time, but you'll get through it. You'll get through it because why? There's something greater, something bigger. If you have a financial reversal, it won't crush you. They're hard things but they won't devastate you because our problems come from our heart. What am I treasuring? What am I treasuring? What is more important to me? Third thing is how do we worship? Why should we worship? What is worship? How do we worship? And I just want to bring out three things. We, we mentioned posture as part of it, but I want to bring out three other things. First of all, worship is done corporately. Now, 
We have people who are at home listening online. So this is a difficult thing. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And so we have people who have decided, for me and my situation, it's best that I stay at home now. Fine, for those at you home, fine. We understand that. Don't take this wrong. Don't take this wrong. It's a difficult time. But when we're comfortable, when you're comfortable, then you need to worship corporately. You need to worship corporately. Because so many times I've heard people say, well, you know, (laughs) I can listen to Charles Stanley at home and he's way better than you are. So I'm like, okay. But you're not worshiping corporately. There's something different there. Well, you've got to understand, I don't like half the people that go to church. I know. Neither do I. No, that's... <laughs> so, nah. I love every one of you equally. <laughs> no, that's not true either. Okay, so... Um, but here's the thing, because the Bible teaches this. There's aspects about God that we learn corporately as a group together when we pray together, when we study together, when we sing together, when we give together, when we meditate together. It's not just alone. And we bring great things out of each other when we are simply together. We are communal beings. We were made that way. God knew what he was doing. We need to worship with people we don't like. We need to worship with people we don't agree with. That's good for us, and it's good for them. And that's why we do this. That's why we do this service. It's important for us, but mostly because it's important for God. He commands us to do this. Do not, he says in Hebrews 10, do not neglect the gathering together, corporate worship, as is the habit of some. In the first century AD, they had people sitting at home going, I'd rather watch Charles Stanley, right? Even then. Don't know how that worked, but even then. And that's why this is so important. That's why every aspect of this is so important. People who set up chairs, people who take down chairs, all the different things that are going on, the live stream, the the sound, the music, the coffee, the greeters, arranging the chairs, teaching the kids in kids' church, on and on and on and on. All of that is going on to enable us to do this. I read not too long ago that about 80% of the people who claim to be Christians say going... About 80 of the people who claim to be Christians don't go to church very often. So then I'm like thinking, okay, I'm not sure exactly how we're defining these phrases here. Because if you mean you can be saved and not go to church, that's true. That's true. But, I mean, you're not saved by going to church. But this is where a part of, this is a part of what God says is life change for us. This is where corporate worship happens. And if you don't ever go to church, you're missing a part of the way God wants to change you, a huge part of the way God wants to change you, right? So it happens corporately. Second thing is, it happens rhythmically. If you you study Psalm 95, it flows beautifully. It's just beautiful literature. God wrote it, so it's obvious, I mean, you know, so it works out well that way, but it's beautiful literature, and it flows. It's perfect for singing. It has praise in the first five verses. Then in the middle, there's submission and confession. Then there's listening to God's word as he, as he, as he reprimands and he, and he encourages, but also uh, kind of exhorts them. And it has rest at the end. And this has influenced the church for thousands of years. 
It's not an absolute command on how you run a worship service, but there are parts of that that is is structured in a worship service. This idea that we're going to have times that we follow something and it's rhythmic so that we stop at times. We encourage people, to, even as you're singing, to be thinking, what am I doing here? Meditating. See, our goal is to see God's greatness as we sing together. Because when we see God's greatness, it reminds us of our littleness and that we need his word of grace and we need what he offers us. And then we practice thanking him as we sing, even in something as simple as as, as we give. We have a, in, in the back, people, as you leave it, you can do it online. You can do so many ways, but it's a part of worship because it's a part of saying, God, thank you. I'm giving back to you what you have given to me. It's yours, and so I'm returning this out of my love for you. And so every single part is important. Worship happens corporately. It happens rhythmically. And I want to say it happens restfully. In the last part of Psalm 95, he's talking about them as they wandered through the wilderness and they missed the rest because of their hardened heart and their unbelief. They missed the rest. And in Hebrews 4, he links that to us as Christians. He quotes part of it. Today, in Hebrews 4, he says this. It's not on the screen, but he says this. Today, if you, harden, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's a quote from Psalm 95. And then he says, "For if Joshua had given them rest, God would, not have, God would not have spoken later about it another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for us. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. He's saying, there is a rest for us. It is here and now. There is a sense at times in the midst of a difficult situation, in the midst of difficult things at work where you can stop and go, you know what? This is not the ultimate thing in my life. And I don't have to kill myself over this. And it's a rest. It's a rest to be able to look to God and trust him. Resting from works. What does this mean? Especially because we all look at something. We look at our performance. We look at our career. We look at how well we obey certain rules that our society or maybe even just our little group sets up for how we're supposed to behave to make ourselves feel like our lives are worth something. Saying, I'm, I'm a good person. My life is worse. I'm a religious person. I'm a conservative person. I'm a liberal person. I'm a moral person. I'm a good family person whatever it is. And and those things can become a burden in our life. They weigh us down. They become an unrelenting taskmaster. And when you try to get your sense of worth through being a good person in some way, it's like you're carrying your life on your back. And it's an incredible load because you're never sure if you've lived a good enough life. And here he says, here's a word of grace for you. There's a rest for you. Jesus Christ came to die for you. He came to pay the penalty. He lost everything at an incredible price. In Psalm 53, it says, the results of his suffering he will see and he will be satisfied. What does that mean? It's an amazing thought. He will look at it all and the results are so valuable to him, he'll say, that was worth it. That was worth it. He was shaped by the worth of something. He was moved by the worth of something and came to die. What was it? You. Think about it. 
You're that piece of jewelry. You're that piece of jewelry. First Peter 2 says you're a chosen, you're chosen. You're, he says you're a holy priesthood. He says you're God's treasured possession. And that word, that word treasured means something that's highly valued. When God talks about you to Peter, say, Jesus talks to Peter, and he says, have you seen, have you seen Samantha? Man, she's great. I love her so much. It was worth it. It was worth it. You're his treasured possession. He looks at you, and he loves you, and he adores you, and he adds up the worth, and he calculates it, and he says, yep, it was worth it. You were worth it because he treasures you. For all of us, for me, as we drive that thought into our heart, I'm his treasure. You're his treasure. It will begin to change you, and you will treasure him. You will start to worship him, be shaped by the worth of your Savior. And what does that lead to? Rest. Not frustration, not stress, not anxiousness. It leads you to rest. That's a great thing. That's what God offers us. Circle all the way back to the beginning this morning when we sang, we're going to surrender. He's saying surrender and find freedom. Surrender and find, fr- find rest. Worship. Why should we worship? What is worship? We looked at those things. How do we do it? Corporately, rhythmically, restfully. There's one song we sing, I love it, because it says, lean back into the loving arms of your Father. That's rest. Resting and trusting in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this psalm that, as it was written, it gives us an idea It gives us thoughts. It gives us things to think about concerning worship and how we're to do it. Lord, help us to glimpse the glory that you have for us, the joy that you have for us. Help us not to set our bar low, but to set it high, to aim high for you. And in doing that, you enable us to live lives that have meaning and purpose that affect other people's lives for eternity. God, thank you that we have the privilege and the joy of being involved in your kingdom, your plan to reach people and change their lives for eternity. There's nothing else that we can do in this world that is as important or as satisfying. So, Lord, help us to allow these things to penetrate us deeply and change us from the inside out. We ask your spirit would be doing that even now. In Jesus' name, amen.